Well, it's like we always say, like my relationship with God is, uh, it's not private, but it is certainly personal. I don't see him as being human, so you can't have a human relationship with him. Naniniwala ako na tayo mayroong personal na relationship sa Diyos dahil sa scripture at sa pagmamahal natin sa anak niyang si Jesus. There are people who believe that that uh, uh, what shirt I put on this morning, that, that God cared what shirt I put on. That's nonsense. I do think God is so big and so vast that um, we'll never get to know him exhaustively. I felt like I heard a voice from heaven speak to my situation and tell me that everything was going to be okay. And I've lived a blessed life since then, since turning my life to God. You have to experience it for yourself. I think it's, it's something hard to describe unless you're actually willing, willing to go there. All right, friends, we are uh, coming to the close of our Explore God series, asking the question, uh, can I know God uh, personally? I, I do want to give a disclaimer to you parents. Thankful for some wise moms that approached me uh, after last service. We're going to be talking about some sensitive content today. And so if you have a fifth grader or younger in the room that you might feel like uh, it would be inappropriate, we'd encourage you to walk across the hall and sign your kiddos into our kids' ministry. It's probably, they're going to probably have more fun there anyways than here. So just want to give you that disclaimer up front. Can I know God personally? It's kind of an interesting question, right? It kind of brings about uh, two tensions. On the one hand, we like our deities away, right? We like them far away. We hope that we might be able to meet our favorite gods or actors and actresses and musicians and poets. Uh, But man, to come close, that would kind of freak us out. Uh, Five years ago, my brother Graham, the littlest seaman, he got married. It was a destination wedding in Clearwater, Florida. We had to wear suits in the summer, but Graham said, it's okay, you can take your shoes off. I'm like, oh, thanks, buddy. Uh, I'm not as thin as you are, but uh, Graham found out that Terry Hawk Hogan lived in Clearwater, Florida. So we went to one of his his shops that he owned, and Graham was kind of smooth-talking the manager and said, hey, is Hawk Hogan in town? I I really want to meet him. And the guy's like, who are you? you?" (laughs) And he said, I'm Graham. I'm getting married tomorrow. This would be, you know, he's just like laying it on. And so about an hour later, the guy says, okay, I'll give Terry a call. Can't make any promises. And so uh, he picks up the phone, and he hears, hey, brother, and, uh, and he said, hey, there's this fan here that wants to meet you. Are you going to swing by at all? And he's like, I got to go pick up Nick. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is really Hawk Hogan uh, from the airport. And then I'll, then I'll stop by. An hour later, Hawk Hogan pulls up in this Escalade Hummer. I can't remember because I was too busy laughing. When Graham sees Hawk Hogan pull up, he loses his ever-loving mind and goes, it's Hawk Hogan! It's Hawk Hogan! And Hawk looks out and he goes, boom, and he just takes off. (laughs) Some of us don't know what to do if our deities got that close. But the other side of the coin is true, that if our gods and our favorite actors and actresses have to pay mortgages and they have to cut their own grass. That just seems too human. Um, shout out to everyone in the room that's 30 in their 30s or younger. And when I was 8 to 10 years old, I went to Northgate Mall in Cincinnati, Ohio to go visit Santa. And there was one gift I wanted that year, Techno Super Bowl. Yes, there are some of you in here that knows what that is. The others of you bought it for your kids. 
It was the one thing that I wanted from Santa. I waited in line forever to tell him that one thing. I told him that, and he gave me the line that he did every year. We'll see what we can do. You know what I'm saying, parents? Uh, and then later, we, we finished our shopping, and before we went home, my dad said, hey, boys, you need to use the restroom uh, because we got a long drive home, which is like 15 minutes. So my dad takes myself and Nathan. Graham wasn't around yet. He wasn't born until 1990. He takes us into the bathrooms, and to my shock and awe and disgust, there was Santa. <laughs> Santa goes to the bathroom? Gods go to the bathroom? This guy who's overweight defeats, defeats the law of gravity once a year and stays in the air and dumps all the presents needs to go to the bathroom? This question tugs at both tensions, right? We, we, we kind of want God to be away because if he got too close, then he would really get to know us. And, but do we want a God that is so close that he has to go to the bathroom? That God, as a boy, has to learn about God through rabbinic school? That God gets tired and has to sleep and gets angry and frustrated and has to hear Mary say, why can't you be like your brother? <laughs> I think we ask the question, can I know God personally when our backs are against the wall? And today I want to explore um, an Old Testament character. Really could have gone anywhere. I was actually thinking about Nicodemus, but I decided to explore David's life, King David's life. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 51. We'll be there mainly the entire morning. We'll like kind of skip to 2 Samuel, but that's what the screens are for. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, go with me to Psalm 51. I'm going to be reading from the uh, NIV. In Psalm 51, David writes this prayer. I'll read it. We'll talk about it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Something happened in David's life that it's always before him. It's the cause of his bad days, his frustrations, anxiety, depression. I don't know if he suffered from those things, but if it did, there's something in front of David that won't go away. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Man, that's a really humble statement, right? Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, if you're unfamiliar with King David's story, he's, we, we sort of get a front row into a king's journal, his diary or his moleskin notebook. He's, he's reflecting on something that happened to him in his life. And so the story goes like this. The Israelites are in battle. Uh, his best man, Uriah, is leading the charge. King David stays home. He should have been on the battlefield, uh, but he decided to stay home. And, you know, when all of your men that are able-bodied are at war, your town's kind of quiet. There's not really a lot to do, right? And so King David, uh, at the hottest part of the day, maybe 12, 3 o'clock p.m., doesn't, doesn't really matter, he looks over his palace and sees a female, Bathsheba, taking a shower. He decides, well, if her husband Uriah is at war, 
then I can have my way with her. So he sends his, this is where parents, it's going to get intense, just letting you know. He sends his, his guys out to say, I, I want to sleep with Bathsheba. And so in the first century, well, much of the first century in the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament, when a king summons you, you basically don't have a choice. I mean, you could say no, but three seconds later, you'd be dead. It, it, really, it would be at the king's discretion. So he has Bathsheba over. He sexually assaults Bathsheba, sends her on her way. Bathsheba, a few days later, a few weeks later, says, David, I'm pregnant. You're the father. And, Bash- and David, um, like many of us, don't think well when we're um, going through high-risk behavior. And so his bright idea is to, is to bring Uriah back in hopes that he would sleep with Bathsheba to sort of cover it up, and then he could say, uh, Uriah, congratulations, you're going to be a new dad. Uh, What a blessing. The problem is Uriah is a man of integrity, right? He says, I can't sleep with my wife. I can't enjoy the pleasures of intimacy and romance with my spouse when my men are fighting for our nation, so he doesn't do it. And then David says, okay, well, I'm going to have him killed. And he puts Uriah on the front lines, right? And Uriah is killed. Legally speaking, he's murdered. So David decides to uh, sexually assault a female, impregnates her, kills her husband to cover it up. Later finds out that the son that Bathsheba is carrying will die. The baby will not make it. And you, you get a sense of David's grief in 2 Samuel 12, 16 through 17. David pleaded with God for the child, like begging God, screaming, crying, and wailing, things that you have done when you get the phone call that your loved one's in the ICU uh, because of a car wreck or your, you, your loved one finds out they have a cancer diagnosis. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. Hebrew way to define that he's in mourning. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused. He would not eat any food or uh, any food with them. David is going through uh, what later he would write as a post-traumatic experience because his decision-making impregnated a female. He murdered her husband, And now the baby is going to die. And it's in this context, right, where he writes Psalm chapter 51. And he says, I know my transgressions and my sin. They are always before me. Now, when I was doing this study this week, I honestly, I found, I don't want want to ever arrive. Uh, The more curious you are, the more things that you can discover about really anything in life, but especially scripture and theology, Something interesting happened to David when he was a child, and I'm not, I'm not saying it's the reason why he assaulted Bathsheba and had her husband murdered, but it causes us to pause, I, I think. In 2 Samuel 16, 10 through 11, the writer says Jesse, which is King David's dad, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel's a prophet sent by God to seek out the next king of Israel, right? But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen any of these. So he asked Jesse, are these all of the sons that you have? Guys, 
what would it be like to be a, to be a boy about middle school age and your dad doesn't think you're worthy enough to be the king of Israel? Man, I need you to go there with me. There's something in Jesse and David's relationship where Jesse looks at David and says, you're not, <laughs> come on, kid, you're too young. You're weak, you're inexperienced, you have no military background, you, you have no strategic thinking background. And he leaves his son to tend to the sheep. As a boy who would later become a man, that is a pretty traumatic experience for a young man not to think or to think that his dad thought not highly enough of him to take him into the house to see if the prophet Samuel would anoint him to be the king. What else is interesting that I found out is we don't know who David's mom actually is. Now, it, it's true that when New Testament and Old Testament writers would give consensus and there'd be a big party or Jesus feeds 5,000, typically men were only counted, not their wives or females or children, but that doesn't mean every male historical figure in the Old Testament didn't have their mother listed. And as I kept researching and digging, I, I thought, I found a really interesting theory um, that we don't really know who David's mom actually is, which gives pause to why he would write, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. There are some Christian traditions that take Psalm 51.5 to, to mean that babies are born in sin. This is the doctrine of original sin. And so if you grew up in a faith tradition where babies were born in sin, then you had to baptize those babies ASAP. Because if a baby was born in sin and died before their baptism, if you're being fair to the theological argument, they would go to hell. Which brings up whole sets of questions about what if the kid's aborted? What if it's a stillborn? We, we, don't, we don't believe that at RCC. The other... Um, way to look at Psalm 51.5 is the way I was taught was, why, just can't, why can't this just be a musician, which David was, describing subjectively how horrible and wretched he felt when he assaulted Bathsheba. But maybe there's a third um, way to look at this. And I'm, I'm just saying this, this could be a theory, all right? I, I, this could be a theory. I could be right, I could be wrong. I'm okay with that. Wouldn't be the first time or the last time. Through my study and my research, there could be a likelihood that Jesse's mom, or I'm sorry, David's mom, was either assaulted herself, like Bathsheba, she may have been a prostitute, or she may have been married to Jesse, but had an affair. Now, when I first read that, I was like, ah, it's like a fat guy in a little coat. I, I, don't, I, I don't know. But then I read Psalm 69, 7 through 8. David is writing this, For I endure scorn for your sake. Now listen to this. And shame covers my face. For I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. Um, I'm not trying to be cool or edgy or crass. I'm just trying to be biblical. 
And sometimes the Bible is willing to be more honest than we are. Uh, sometimes in church we like to keep everything nice and even kill. I don't care about that. I want to be honest. In Hebrew, the word foreigner is the English word for bastard. David is saying, I am a bastard to my own family. Uh, I'm sorry, a foreigner to my own family, a bastard to my own mother's children. Could it be that David's mom had an affair, was assaulted, or a prostitute? Sure. But, but what I think I'm more comfortable saying is something happened in David's life that made him feel like he didn't connect with his family. He didn't connect with his mom, and he didn't connect with his dad. Now, here's what we know about science, medicine, and, and psychology. This is great when it catches up to what God already knows. That trauma is passed down from one generation to the next. So if grandma and grandpa had traumatic experiences in their childhood, and, 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 if, and if you take it back to the boomer generation, right, women didn't really have a voice or a vote. They kind of had to take it however their husbands led their family. Counseling really wasn't a thing. There wasn't advo advocacies for women. They don't resolve their, um, their, um, their trauma. Then they give birth to their children, and their children have traumatic experiences, and they don't resolve their trauma, and then they give birth to you. We know now scientifically that trauma is passed down from generation to generation if it goes unresolved. Notice what the Science Daily says, and I've could, I could quote many articles that say the same thing. Previous research has looked at childhood trauma as a risk factor for later physical and mental health problems in adulthood, but this is the first research to show that long-term behavior health harms of childhood adversity extend across generations from parent to child. The study goes on to say that children of parents who themselves had four or more adverse childhood experiences we're at double the risk of having attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and we're four times more likely to have mental health problems. When David writes, surely I was sinful at birth, and I'm not going to give you the answer because I want to make you work for it and I trust your imagination. This is a, one of the reasons why Jesus really only answered a handful of the questions that the disciple asked because he trusted their imagination. Is Psalm 51.5, I was sinful at birth, scaffolding to hold up original sin, so all babies have to be baptized, is it scaffolding to hold up, well, can it just be a musician that just says how terrible he felt, he feels for what he did to Bathsheba and the fact that he killed her husband and the baby died? Third option, or could it be scaffolding to hold, the, uh, to hold up the idea that I was literally born in sin when my mom had an affair, was assaulted, or maybe she herself was a prostitute? My childhood experience is ever before me because now it's my adulthood experience. Except this time, I'm doing the assaulting. This time another human being is murdered because of me. If we don't resolve traumatic experiences in our lives, this will be passed down from generation to generation. 
And you kind of go, wow, maybe Jesus had a point when he said, a man and a woman should join together, leave their family, and be married for a lifetime. You kind of go, man, maybe he kind of knew what he was talking about. Uh, I almost wept this week when I was watching the news because there are two high schools in Mass that are having, I think their words, a pregnancy epidemic in the high schools. Something like 21 pregnancies in the last couple of months. And their answer is to give kids condoms because, you know, they're going to do it anyways. I'm not here to argue condoms or no condoms. What I'm here to say is those are 21 babies born with a post-traumatic experience at the hands of 42 high school students that they themselves had a sexual encounter with one another but didn't know this because sometimes trauma is fun, isn't it? When you're 16 and you're dating the hot high school cheerleader girl that you thought you could never stand next to, let alone sleep with? Yeah, sometimes in our immaturity and our wickedness, we think sinning is fun. We think trauma is fun. But it destroys us. Here's what we need, friends. We need God involved in our death story. Now, you're going to hear this phrase a lot next year when we talk about the inward journey and spiritual formation. And, yeah, the idea to journey inward. Our death story is, it could be multiple things. It could be um, a time in our life that caused so much trauma for us, whether we did something or something has been done to us, whether it's a David or a Bathsheba experience, that it has since defined who we are. It is, as David says, always before me. I always think about, it It could have been something that happened 15 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, but it is always before me. When we ask the question, can I know God personally? I think what we're asking is, does God still want to know me even in my most traumatic experience in life? And the answer is yes. So let me give you some relief. In Psalm 51, 6, David writes, Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Here's man. Yeah, this is so good. This is so good. If you were born in trauma, the gospel is already at work in the midst of the delivery room when you were born. We know that scientifically, medically, psychologically, when your grandparents and your parents did not deal with trauma, oh, by the way, it produces a lining in your gut that makes it hard for you to lose weight. So if you're trying to lose weight and you're like, I can't, I'm doing everything right because you haven't dealt with your trauma, friends. What the gospel is saying is that even if you were born in a traumatic experience, you were a baby of one of the 42 high schoolers in mass that are having sex and having fun and thinking they're living their best life, when you were born in trauma at the hands of two parents who had no idea what was going on, the gospel says it's already at work in your life. That God knows us personally. What do you mean by personally? How is that measurable? At the DNA level. That God is in the midst of even two people who are committing sin against each other. 
whether it's consensual or not, God's in the middle of that, fighting the encoding on your DNA that's going to naturally have a propensity for you to struggle with mental health. God is already at work in you so that as you grow up, hopefully, you go to a local church, you get involved, you decide to follow Jesus, you get baptized, you believe everything that he claimed to be, you want to express that publicly next week, for example, and you want to get baptized, that's when the tears roll down. Because the whole, then, then you, oh, it's so good. Then you realize that God has been work at my, in my life since the moment of my conception. That's how personally God wants to know us. There are many things, but we only have time for three. There are three things that David asks of God in Psalm 51. Here's the first one. Cleanse me, or, or clean me. Now that's interesting, given the fact of the, um, the nature of his sin, which was assault, sexual assault. He says, cleanse me with the hyssop. Well, that's weird. No, it's not. In the Old Testament, like I love, God is amazing. Like before, you know, Pastor came on and we discovered germs were a thing, the way he, in which he treated the, the, nom, the, the nomadic people of the Israelites actually helped them to be healthy uh, uh, medically, and they didn't even know it. And so if you had a skin disease, you would be taken away from the Israelite community, and hopefully this doesn't cause anybody to freak out, but remember those middle school years when you went to summer camp and you're all locked in those cabins? You would go into a cabin or a house where everyone else had your medical condition. In this case, hyssop, would be applied to you, and it would cure your skin disease. When um, God told Pharaoh, I'm going to kill the firstborn of every children, every, every family, firstborn child of every family, Pharaoh, because you're so wicked and, and, and uh, just you don't want to follow me, the, the Israelites were, were told to put blood on the doorpost so the angel of death would pass over them, which was the origin of the Passover meal, which is why we do communion, the Passover meal now, because we believe that that is about Jesus. But I didn't know this until this week. Hyssop was used on the doorpost as a holding agent to keep the blood on the doorpost. Now, this is wild. In John uh, 12, verse 28 through 30, notice, notice hyssop comes up again. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Kind of interesting, right? Uh, a jar of wine vinegar was there, so he soaked a sponge in it but the sp and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. There's a cleansing Listen to me, there is a cleansing that we need that has to be scrubbed deeper than a plant. And what the gospel is saying, and what Jesus is saying, and, and it's so easy to miss, that by the hyssop, or the stalk of the hyssop touching Jesus' lips, he's telling us, I will cleanse you of your sin. I, I, will, I will cleanse you of the worst day of your life, the most traumatic experience you've had in your life, if you will 
allow me to. It's interesting that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, you, you read this promise. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us, or if you have a different translation, cleanses us from all of our sin. There's a reason why David, who committed a sexual sin, said, God, clean me. I feel dirty. In my 15 years of ministry, whether it was middle school or high school students or adults, when, they, when, when, when their guilt catches up to their sexual activity, at least what they tell me behind closed doors or over coffee is, I just feel dirty. Or if I was attacked, I just, I, I, I just feel so violated. I just want to go home and take a shower and have that, you know, uh, Sunday morning, springtime feeling when you step out of the shower and you're completely clean. And Jesus says, I'll do that. I'll do that for you. You see, part of recovering from our trauma is psychology, is medication, is working out, is a church, is a life group. If you believe you have a soul, then your trauma needs to meet the gospel. Your trauma needs to meet Jesus. Because Jesus says, I'll, I'll, I'll do better what a, what a plant could never do. I'll, I'll, not, I'll not only cleanse you, I'll redeem or I will buy back those wasted and hurtful years that you experienced all the way, <laughs> that's amazing, <laughs> all the way from the moment you were born. I was waiting for you to personally know you, grow you, love you, and develop you. Secondly, David says, don't leave me alone. A king, most powerful man in the world, is on his knees, I would imagine, asking an invisible God, don't leave me alone. In Psalm 51, 9 through 10, David writes, hide your face from my sin, blot out my iniquity, do not cast me out of your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. You can see the anguish, I hope, and feel the anguish, I definitely hope, this tension of, God, don't, don't look at my sin, which is right here, but also stay close, right? Right? You, you, when you were a kid, you ever been terrified to sleep at night? You wanted your mom or dad to stay close, but not too close, because that's kind of weird. David's like, don't look at my stuff. I'm in an embarrassment to you. But, but, but can, can you stay close to me, God? Listen to me, friends. Especially uh, in our movement of Me Too and even pastors and Christian comedians committing sexual crimes, there is a difference between being sinful, doing something sinful, and doing something illegal, right? You can't prosecute a sinful act, but you can prosecute an illegal act. David says, I have done both. I, I, I have a, a, a dung pile so high, God, I do not want you to look at it. On the cross, the father turns his face away from the son, now, I know our culture loves the, the phrase, God is love, and he is. That's not his defining attribute. His defining attribute through Hebrew poetry, because it's, I forget the name, it's really long, it, because it repeats the word three times, multiple times, is not God's love, but it's actually his holiness. You can find it in Isaiah. God is defined as holy, holy, holy. God's holiness 
could not be in the presence of bearing your sin on his son's shoulders. And then you've got Mary probably crouched down like this and, and kind of hearing the screams from her son, wanting to look at him just as, you, you get this mom, right? Like when, when your kid's on the soccer field and maybe breaks an arm, you want to do everything you can to protect them, but, but then you have to let profession, you, you, you kind of get the tension of this, right? And she's, she's looking at her son maybe through her fingers and nobody wants to look at Jesus because everybody knows we cost Jesus' life. And Jesus says, I will not turn my back away from you. I will stare your sin, your brokenness, your traumatic experiences, things that you have done, things that have been done to you, right into the face. I will not turn my back from you, and I will not leave your presence. Then David says, restore me. Restore me. Now, restore is in the same family reunion as the word repent. I like the Hebrew word for repent. It's much more beautiful than the Greek word. The Hebrew word for, for repent is teshuva. It means to come home. It, mean, it means that God left the light on and, 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 you, and you can go back home and you can have that relationship. Most of us don't know God personally because out of our own sin, wickedness, brokenness, and traumatic experience, something we've done or been done, something's been done to us, we don't think that God wants to have a relationship with, with us anymore. We don't think that God keeps the light on. We don't think we can come home. Psalm fifty-one, twelve. David pleads to God, restore to me the joy of my salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Let me tell you what the gospel does when we come home. This is amazing, especially if you've had a traumatic experience in your life. Memorize this verse. I did. 1 Peter 5.10. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, listen to this, after you have suffered a little while, after you have suffered a little while, God was with us, in the womb, knitting the gospel story in our, in, in our lives and in our DNA as it's fighting off the traumatic experience encoded in the DNA from the stuff our parents and our grandparents never talked about in the hopes that as we grow up, we would find peace and love and forgiveness in Christ. And after we had suffered a little while and we come to faith in Jesus and we get baptized like next Sunday, notice what the gospel does. Jesus himself will restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. He'll, he'll, steadfast means he'll, he'll give you a place to stand, that the gospel gives you your dignity back. Can you know God personally? Yeah, at the DNA encoded level of your mom's pregnancy. He's been waiting for you. May this not be a great cognitive sermon. May this be a sermon where the Holy Spirit is inviting you to take a next step, where we say, God, clean me. Do not hide your face or run away from me. And would you please restore me? Can I, can I please have permission to come back home? And the answer profoundly is yes. That's why Christianity is so messy. We're both sinner and saint all at the same time. 
you have a, a, an Explore God card on your seat. And this is the end of our Explore God series. And so we're going to ask you to get up and move here in just a moment. We've got, uh, we've got safety pins, Bob, Bob, some sort of pins. I can't remember. Um, maybe your mom or grandma used it for laundry in the backyard. Yeah, you kind of know what I'm saying. So we want you to take a moment to fill this card out. Here's what we want you to think about. Two next steps. Keep it simple. Uh, if you sense that the Spirit is inviting you to be baptized, it's time for you to take that next step. Would you communicate this, communicate that this on this card, and then hang it up on the walls? Either, either side of the walls is fine. Um, if you've already uh, been baptized, you're already following Jesus. The journey, friend, does not end with you. It, it doesn't. It doesn't end with like I know Jesus loves me, and that's it. The goal of the gospel is not to go beyond the cross, it's to go deeper into it. So for you, whether you've been following Jesus a year or longer than I've been alive, 37 years, what is your next step? Where do you sense God inviting you to explore him? I'm going to pray, and I want you to fill this card out and move to either side of the wall. After you're finished doing that, you'll notice that there are four communion stations, two in the front and two in the back. And we invite you to take communion with us as a remembrance that the blood is held up by the hyssop and Jesus gives us the glorious promise that he will wash us clean. He will not turn his back on us and he will redeem and restore us. So let me pray. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you are a God that personally wants to get to know us. You personally have made yourself available to us uh, in a way that no other God or, reli- or other religious leader has. And so I pray for bravery uh, for my friends now here. I know it can be awkward and tough to move in a, in a typical church setting, but I pray that they would do that and not care or worry about people around them. Spirit, would we be close to you and what you're inviting us into, be it baptism or anything else? May, may we be a church that leans into your hearts. Lead us and guide us now. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.